This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show... Green Beret veteran and member of the 7X team, Chris Robishaw, a.k.a. Roby. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from his unique journey into the military, the role of the Green Berets, leadership within that position, working with international agencies, the importance of training, his transition story, circumnavigating the globe with the 7X crew, his work in the Ukraine, mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chris Robishaw. Enjoy. Well, Roby, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. We discussed this a long time ago, probably on a plane, on a bus, on a car, and all the other vehicles that we were on. But we are now sitting down to do the interview. So welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thanks, James. It's so good to see you again. I've missed you, you know, since our adventure uh, last spring. Um, and it was, it was, a, I remember, I mean, obviously we connected several times, whether we're in line for 
screening at airports or getting in the queue for the skydives or whatever. But, uh, you know, most importantly, I, I don't know if you recall, but we had a really, really fun conversation. It was on the bus and it was in Egypt. And to be honest with you, man, um, you know, it had a profound effect on me. We were talking about adrenal fatigue and uh, stuff like that. So, I mean, that's where I really got turned on your podcast. And, you know, I think that really kind of catapulted our mutual uh, respect, I guess. Right. Like I got to know you there. Oh, and then we did that fire department thing in, in Dallas as well. Yes. And you an incredibly uh, a heartfelt uh, testimony to the firefighters there and to the uh, the folks that were participating. That was really well done. And I know for you, it's secondhand, but that was also quite impactful. Anyways, thank you uh, for the invitation, man. Thanks. Yeah, well, I mean, it was February. Is that right? When we were going around the world? Yeah, so yeah. so we'll get yeah. into that because I want to unpack that a little bit. And the adrenal fatigue is funny. That was a very profound realization for me as well. But again, we'll we'll, we'll cross that bridge in a minute. So very first yeah. question then, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Yeah, so I'm back home in Northeast Ohio, not, not far from Lake Erie. I, I grew up here and then I went away for 33 years in the Army. And now I'm back uh, eager to help take care of my dad. Uh, and um, I'm still tight with all my buddies from high school. Um, I'm a little more rural now. I'm surrounded by farms and forests purposefully. Uh, it's really enjoyable. But yeah, I grew up just a few towns from here. So Northeast Ohio. Beautiful. I was just in Ohio in North Canton. That's where my wife's from. So uh, I was just visiting with her um, and her family and friends a few days ago. Yeah, I'm a couple hours north of that, I think. So we're speaking of that. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline. So you you mentioned where you were born. Talk to me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, so two parents and uh, two more siblings, a brother just a year younger and a, a sister maybe five or six years younger. Uh, yeah, I geez, uh, James, just an absolute blessed childhood. I mean, just a very loving family. Uh, we, we're all from Buffalo, whatever. And then my dad settled here up on the lake. I, I keep looking over there cause I'm looking towards the lake, but, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I'm blessed. I, I couldn't have asked for a better, you know, my wife teases me, you know, that it was the, the cleavers, you know, from leave it to beaver. Like everything was just Shangri-La. And if it wasn't, my parents did a good job protecting me, but I don't suspect there, there was any big issues. So I would say middle-class, um, middle-class family. Uh, I, I guess my biggest gripe or my drama was, you know, I was sent away to Catholic schools, meaning sent away from my hometown to the next town over uh, for Catholic grade schools, which sucked. Uh, nothing against Catholicism, but man, that school was just, you know, every everything we we make jokes about, you know, nuns with rulers and, you know, priests that are might be inappropriate. You know, like it, it was just awful. I mean, I, I was fine, but the nuns. In fact, I think I used to, ch- uh, I used to, um, I'm sorry, I did think I silenced this. Um, I did uh, accuse them of being communists all the time, you know, that they were part of some type of sleeper cell. <laughs> Anyways, uh, then come high school, unfortunately, then I went to the other side of our town to a Catholic high school. Um, and I think that's where, like, my rebellion really, really started. My rebellion, meaning my angst. Uh, I was just so unhappy. I was away from my friends in my hometown, uh, you know, playing sports with them and, and growing close with them and not being in high school with them. So uh, I think uh, it was my my first act of sabotage was really I, I let off fireworks, uh, firecrackers during a mass. And that promptly got me kicked out again by design. And then I got to finish my last two years 
at the public high school with my friends. <laughs> but uh, my behavior didn't really get better after that, but my morale certainly skyrocketed. And yeah, I joined the, you know, was it Red Dawn and, you know, First Blood um, and maybe a, pre no, no, it was before Predator, Commando, I guess, maybe it was a Commando movie. But, you know, those things really, really hit to me. And, I, you know, my dad was in the National Guard during the Vietnam era. So he doesn't have any uh, really outstanding stories other than prison riots and, you know, things that the, they did in the National Guard. Um, I had an uncle that served in Vietnam. He's been quite influential. And then, of course, my grandfather fought in the Battle of the Bulge. And I would always hang on his every word. So I guess those were the influences that. But really, it was a movie Red Dawn, the one with Patrick Swayze, not that crapola one that came out a few years ago, but the original. <laughs> and I uh, I was really interested. I started hounding the recruiters when I was 16. And then just a few, like a week after my 17th birthday, my the recruiter came over and I signed up uh, uh, for the reserves because they had this cool program where you can go to basic training your summer between your junior and senior year. And then you come back, finish out your senior year with an awful haircut. Uh, and then right after you graduate, then you go back for your, your continued training in the Army. It's called AIT, Advanced Individual Training. And I was uh, going to be a medic. So I did that. So I, I was I was all in. You know, I was the crazy kid at Catholic grade school. I remember I somehow I got a hold of a camouflage coat, you know, and I thought I was just king shit. And... To be honest with you, it just didn't let up until three years ago when I retired. I, I've just been all in. I don't know. It's uh, kind of a psychosis of some sort. I'm not really sure. Weren't the camo coats fashionable when, when we were about that age? Because I want to say the whole grunge era brought, especially the German jackets for some reason. Yeah, this is 80s, right? So I'm substantially older than you are. It's like, <laughs> at least I assume I am. No, it was like a Army Navy store, woodland camouflage. You know, it was just a BDU top. But man, I would have thought it was like, you know, the the a golden fleece. I couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, that's my background before I I shipped off to uh, to become a medic. Uh, in my time in high school, I, I was just dismal, dismal student, dismal scholastics, chip on my shoulder in all the sports. Teachers hated me. Parents rightfully were frustrated with me, but but I was having the time of my life. Um, wasn't heavy drugs to this day. I've never done a drunk driving incident, but I was you know I was introduced to alcohol real early. Never did pot. I, I was just really just loving uh, being a relatively good looking kid and doing all right with the girls and and my best friends and just tooling around like maniacs. Uh, see, fourteen. I, I did get busted with alcohol at fourteen. I had to do a little thing at juvie there for. Just a little bit, but um, yeah, other than that, I had a great time, but I think I really put my parents through hell, which, you know, being slightly more wise, uh, looking back on that, I kind of regret that, especially now that my mom passed. It's like, ah, I hate that I put put them through that stuff, but it's coming. I got a 13 year old, so uh, it's, what comes around goes around. Absolutely. Yeah. Mine's turning 16 on Thursday. So uh, yeah taking this test and god you know you talk about nerves as a firefighter allowing your child to go drive on their own is you know one of the most terrifying yet courageous things a first responder can do i think because we've seen the worst side so you just pray that your year of training has you know instilled enough common sense into them yeah you just want to put them in an mrap with surrounded by airbags you know and uh 
and a governor so he doesn't go over 20 miles an hour so he doesn't hurt anybody exactly exactly with comms on constantly um all right well then going back to your family just for a second grandfather first what did what did what were the the what was the perspective that you got from him from his service and then now with this lens did you identify you know the the mental health element that obviously that generation didn't really get to offload wow you know just as you were asking me that i had a flashback i hadn't thought of in years so back at that catholic grade school uh it was grand grandparents day and they came in from buffalo and you know they're catholic like like off the boat sicilian you know catholic and uh he came up to tell a story oh my god and he he froze up and started crying in front of my seventh grade class like he couldn't finish it he said you know excuse me i'm sorry he froze up i remember like oh my god i feel like i'm back there like like i got like hot flash for probably for the first time in my life and goosebumps and my friends are like is he okay is he okay i'm like shit i'm not and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He just kind of ran out of the room, uh, embarrassed as shit. And uh, boy, I think, boy, I, that's a great question. And thanks for conjuring that up. I, that would that probably had a really big impact on me. Yeah, poor guy. You know, and the story, if I recall, was kind of innocuous. I probably heard it a bunch of times. Um, but I think it had to do like with just artillery barrage and, and just being stuck and surrounded and just... Uh, and then the weather broke. And then when the first transport planes, yeah, it was a happy story that that when the first resupply planes came in for for that that division, I believe, in the Ardennes that they were pinned down. And then when the weather broke, all the resupply bundles started coming in. And, and that was one of the happiest moments of his life. Thanks, James. I haven't done that in a long time. Man. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, I'm gonna pull up some pictures after this. It's amazing, yeah. though, because, I mean, sadly, we lost these voices. And I always point to when we talk about masculinity, this kind of facade. And you talked about, you know, Red Dawn and Commando. That's what we were raised on. That was, you know, masculine, um, you know, warriors on on the screens. And some of them were portraying real people. Some of them obviously weren't. I mean, I don't think Predator is actually a real soldier, for example. But um, but you look at the real men in the Band of Brothers story, and they were, you know, probably somewhere in that forest alongside your your grandfather and you know that they're some of the most fearsome warriors that we've ever seen in in the u.s military but the vulnerability and you know the the tears and the emotion we're talking almost i think it was like 70 plus years later that these men are being interviewed for this show that's masculinity and you know you cannot go through for example the battle of the bulge and you know, not have it affect you when men are being blown to pieces left, right, and start you know freezing to death and all these other things. So, you know, I think it's so important when we're able to hear whether it's through the actual veteran, which I've had on here before, or more often than not, you know, the sons or the grand grandchildren of these veterans to continue this story because we call them the greatest generation in the world. But again, that's kind of like this facade that they were all fine. They came home and they just went to work. And the reality is, they struggled. Some of them did better than others, but they all struggled. For sure. And I don't know, I was talking with some other veterans through the years, and 
I think there was also a big difference, right? And I'm I'm sure you captured this in one of your like over 800 interviews, which is congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Um, That uh, the the guys returning back to the U.S., you know, and probably Canada for that matter, or you know, even back to New Zealand and Australia and all that. But the guys that had the long ship ride home with their mates, and you know, certainly one thing I've gotten relatively good at talking about is grief and and in the different stages of grief and and i have a bit of a, a couple of philosophies i always you know whenever i lost a guy I'd, as a commander i'd go visit the guys and you know obviously as soon as possible and, and help them having been through it personally on the battlefield uh just to visit them and kind of just tell them what's worked for me in dealing with with grief or whatever and and that long ride home regardless of how they were coping or whatever, you know, that was weeks and weeks of eating Navy food stuck in the belly, you know, just kind of with your, with your, with who's left, I guess, you know, depending on, on how much con- contact they had. Uh, you know, whereas our Vietnam uh, forefathers, they didn't, they didn't have that luxury. You know, they were on a plane and they came back generally as individual augmentees, generally speaking, if the unit didn't redeploy. Um, and, uh, what a stark difference that is to be thrown, like just going through a time portal, almost like a, a parallel universe. Yeah. I've had that a lot with, with veterans from your era, you know, it literally, whatever it was, you know, 24 hours prior, they were in Afghanistan and now they're in a Walmart in Wisconsin, you know, and, and they were literally in combat 24 hours before and now, Someone's bitching about the line being too long, you know, and I can relate as a first responder. I mean, you were cutting someone out of a car at 3 a.m. and then your neighbor's bitching about your trash cans at 9 a.m. and you want to, you know, throat punch them. So it is, it is, we don't have that separation anymore like we did. Um, and even, you know, the, the soldiers in the UK, you know, the, the, the Northern Ireland conflict. I mean, that's a just a hop, skip and a jump away from being back there. And they're in that war zone in the 80s and 90s. And then now they're back in civilian life. And, and sadly, the other thing is a lot of people don't give a shit what you just did three hours, five hours, 24 hours before. It's a, Yeah, it, I, that has to be a unique variable, uh, you know, to modern conflicts. It has to be. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in some humanitarian work in Ukraine. And maybe we'll get to that. But um, and there we see, you know, it's your homeland and then guys get banged up. You know, and they're walking around or on crutches or wheelchairs, you know, in, in their cities and towns in their back. I could imagine what that dynamic is. Of course, they're, see, that goes into the whole community. Like, they're probably welcomed as heroes, I, I presume. I mean, that's such an incredibly patriotic country, a patriotic culture uh, in a very intense patriotic time. So I'll bet they're surrounded by love. You know, but then I keep going back to the disservice to our our Vietnam predecessors and just the absolute dismal reception that that they had uh, writ large, you know, outside of their families. So a lot lot of different variables, you know, I don't know, like what did a legionnaire, you know, uh, in the Roman Empire, he comes, you know, he's got like a three month journey coming back, you know, through the Alps and back down to Rome. Like, I don't know, like, did they talk? You know, they sit around the campfire. Did they tease each other? Did they mourn did they pack up you know one of their fallen you know pack up their kit and go through that you know kind of 
emotional exercise of packing up a, a fallen brother, you know, all of his stuff. Um, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Sebastian Junger in his book Tribe talks about that a lot. You know, a lot of the older cultures they had that homecoming, you know, when it came to the warriors, they had the storytelling, they had the rituals, you know, and, and there was, uh, an ex, you know, an audience for this warrior to tell, this is what we did for you. This, you know, this is who we lost. This is who was hurt. Um, this is what we gained. But, you know, especially with Vietnam, you know, you've got this anti-war movement and, you know, a lot of people could justify the actual principle behind it, but especially the people that are being drafted, they didn't even have a choice. They were told, go and fight this war. And then, you know, they're coming back. And I had, you know, so many people from that era. Uh, Major Capers is one that really stands out. He he was um, when the original Air, uh, excuse me, Air Force Marine recon um, and had a, you know, a very, very famous battle. And, and it's kind of one of those ones that a lot of people say should be awarded the Medal of Honor. But that aside, you know, he was wounded, came back and he said, I was lying there on the pavement after being evac back to the U.S. and someone urinated on me. He's been sent away. He's, you know, he's fought for this country. He's protecting the the Southern Vietnamese people. And then this is his, his reception. So, and then we wonder why so many of the Vietnam era veterans struggle so much because there was no homecoming there was no storytelling it was the opposite they they were you know treated a lot of them like baby killers and you know betrayal was what they received not not you know praise and thanks i couldn't imagine i i am so fortunate i i had the absolute opposite opposite reception parades key to the city you know <laughs> Uh, the reception at, at Fort Bragg when we landed. This is the Gulf War kind of going. The, the original one, you know, the the big one, not the sequel. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> the, the big, uh, my first one. Um, yeah, I, I can't relate. I mean, I, I can't even get my head around that because I've I've, I've been experienced the uh, the the antithesis of that. Nothing but love and respect, and and uh, even even through the thirty three years, um, it's never let up here in the states so i am eternally grateful for that it's not it's not lost on me least bit. yeah well that's that's how it should be that's good to hear so let's walk through so you're this bright-eyed you know recruit walk me through your initial journey into the military and then what took you into the special forces side wow i came a long way to be honest with you i'm, I'm thinking of that scared shitless e1 private who went to basic training and i've never been well, I mean, we travel as a family a little bit, but I've never been south of the Mason-Dixon line, except for Disney. That doesn't count, you know? And then there I am getting yelled at uh, in, in South Carolina by, you know, uh, just different uh, accents and ethnicities and the drill instructors, drill sergeants. And I couldn't understand. And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm the youngest guy in the platoon. What? And then, you know, and then I, you know, retired uh, just a couple of years ago uh, with a career that I'm incredibly proud of. And, and I, I think I was all right. I think I was a better NCO than I was as an officer, but, uh, you know, I, I did okay, you know, and, and to think of the, how much growing and all the experiences that took place in those 30 some odd years, that's, it's, uh, it's really hard to get my head around, but I, I guess just the wave tops would be, yeah. So I was in the reserves. Um, I did okay in the medic course, just combat medic, nothing, nothing OR tech or nothing like that. Just the, basic line medic 
And then the only school or college I got accepted to was in Maine. Now I'm in Ohio. Well, Maine's quite quite a ways away, but my SATs and ACTs were so bad. And my GPA, I mean, I just graduated by the skin of my teeth. Um, but this college accepted me. It was an environmental college and, and the big acceptance requirement was an essay. And so I was like, all right, well, I, I can write because I'm kind of, I've always been able to creatively write, I guess. And so I lied on the essay about what I want in life and stuff and they bought it and I got accepted. <laughs> uh, so my parents dropped me off in Maine, probably happily. And, uh, and I wasn't ready for college yet. I was in the reserves at the time, still a medic with some infantry unit up there. But, um, no, I, I dropped out. I, uh, actually, you know what it was? It was, uh, just cause operation, just cause, uh, maybe some of your listeners aren't familiar. That was the invasion in Panama to oust the, the dictator down there, Manuel Noriega in 1989. And I, I kind of caught it during my winter break and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm wasting my parents' money. I, I'm just, you know, freezing my house off in Maine. You know, there's nothing to do up there. You know what? I'm I'm just going to join the army. Like I'm not ready for college. You know, I, maybe that was my first self-aware moment, James. You know, as a as a strapping 19 and a half year old, 20 year old, like this college. I'm not ready. I'm not I'm not there yet. And so I did. I quit college, or as I told my dad, I postponed my studies and uh, went active duty. Uh, but this time I reclassified for infantry. I thought I thought I wanted I wanted as much out of that four years as I could. I thought the infantry would be the best way to go. And lo and behold, the, the, the paratrooper, the airborne infantry was available. So that's, that's what I did for four years, signed up for four years. And then as I joke, uh, every four years, I thought I was going to get out of the army. You know what I mean? Like I never thought I was going to be a careerist every three or four years when you come up for reenlistment, you know, kind of going into it, I'm like, yeah, okay, great. I'm going to get out. You know, that was great. I learned a lot. You know, I got some certifications or you know, some GI bill and I'm going to go back to college. But so what is that? Eight times over, <laughs> uh, seven or eight times over. For some reason, I kept staying in because the the army, for, for what it's worth, it really kept me challenged and it kept it kept providing me like the next the next thing for my my ambition and my appetite and my assignments that, that I was asking for, especially in special forces, because it's such a small community and then even smaller as a special forces officer that you do get a lot of tender loving care you know if if i had stayed an infantry officer uh you know i'm just another number there's a gazillion of them but once you're an sf officer that community is is intimate and you get to know your 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 assignments guy up there at the headquarters and they try to appease you know what, what do you want to do you know what, where do you want me to sign uh, how's your wife's you know job prospect looking do you have any elder parents that need help can we assign you with them and it's just uh, it's the way everybody should be treated. Uh, but just with the bureaucracy, something the size of the army, there's I don't know if there's any way to uh, to show that level of compassion um, because you get more out of us. Right. If if you're if you're addressing the emotional needs of, of a soldier uh, and the family needs, then you're gonna, I think you're going to get a lot more out of that cat, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Um, so maybe that's why they do it. Uh, but anyway, so I uh, joined the paratroopers and immediately went off to Desert Shield. I believe we were the second brigade. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. And the first brigade took off. As soon as I got there, they took off. And then we immediately, immediately went to alert. And then we were the second of the brigades to go. 
So I was there pretty much in August, which was about when Desert Shield started. This is kind of funny. I, I hope I don't have too many tangents, but uh, so everybody in my company, let alone specifically my platoon, had combat jumped and fought in Panama. So in the paratrooper world, you get a little distinction on your jump wings. It's a it's a gold star, a little gold thread in the shape of a star. And it's it's highly regarded because other than uh, some rangers in Grenada, we hadn't seen these jumps since World War II. You know, some of the veterans will have like four stars on their jump wings. You're like, oh, my God, you know, like that guy. Um, so here's a bunch of, you know, infantry dudes, knuckle draggers. Some of them, some of them were incredible people, but. Um, you know, but they're just king shit because they got they fought in Panama. So not only did they had the combat infantry badge, they had the the jump star. Except me, <laughs> except <laughs> me. So I roll in and I've got nothing other than I was a medic, and I think they kind of appreciated that. I had to carry a, a real big uh, aid bag, um, and I I was treated like shit. You didn't have a main insignia that you were in college. I didn't have anything. <laughs> uh, a flatliner. Oh, I had my airborne wings, I guess. Yeah, I couldn't say, hey, I failed out of college. You know, no, that that that, that wasn't respected uh, in the platoon of infantry guys. But that sucked, man. That was nine months or so of just, right? And in the services, I'm sure the rookie gets fucking abused, right? Like, you got to go through the, the rites of passage. Um yeah, right. I mean, I, I assume you got. Beat oh, up. in our professions, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you're a humble rookie, you know, you get to the end of that year, and you're still the junior man. You know what I mean? So that if we if we do that path right, you know, it should be about learning. But yeah, there, there needs to be humility, and you see them. You know, the 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 best veterans that we have still act like they're rookies. They're they're still hungry for knowledge and right full of humility. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think I did pretty good at that. Um, being humble and just taking it on the chin and volunteering for every literally burning shit, you know, shit burning details. Like uh, that was, that was my primary job. Uh, you know, when first platoon duties came around, I mean, every, everything that came down. And in fact, they called me Roba Cherry instead of Robichaw. <laughs> Roba Cherry, Cherry meaning a, a, you know, an FN, a, a fucking new guy to a unit. It's called a Cherry. Talk about Vietnam, uh, terminology. Uh, but then what, you know, what happened was people started getting in fights, just bored paratroopers doing shit and getting in trouble and pranks. And then sooner or later, you know, they'd be like, first platoon, give me one guy. And I'd get up, you know, and you know, I'm reporting and they'd be like, no, 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 sit down, Robichary. Bertolami, get over here. And I'm like, oh, my God, other people are doing some of these shit burning details or or unloading things or whatever. So or KP, you know, um, so that that was kind of an elation and let the guys get in trouble. Um and, and then, James, I guess from that, you know, I redeployed after Desert Storm and shit just really started working out for me. I was so hungry and ambitious. I just started knocking out all these infantry qualifications, extra schools, uh, all these little tests and proficiency things. And I was really into it. I kind of found my my niche, I think. And it was a good matchup. I was really fit. Which, which again is your, is your private, but you can outperform everybody else in the platoon and fitness. That's one thing they can't hold over you. And it was my own little, my, my secret victory over him. You know, I, I mean, nobody, well, one guy could outrun me, but he ended up going to the national mission force. Uh, but, but aside from him, I mean, nobody, nobody can keep up with me. So that helped. Um, oh, and then I went to a, the Ranger course as a really young soldier, as a young paratrooper. 
Uh, the Ranger course in the, in the U.S. Army is a is a is a pretty big deal, particularly in the infantry. And I, I did exceptionally well at it, um, despite being naive. I think it's because no one expected much from me. Uh, so I didn't get any hard, hard, hard patrols because I was just like an E3, a, a first class promotable, I like to say. And and after ranger school, again, all this jump master, all these schools just kept coming and coming. And I made rank really quick. And uh, at the end of the four years, I was already a staff sergeant. And I had a lot of options. I had a lot of options of where to go. Um, also within that four years, uh, as an E6, I tried out for special forces. So we have a selection. Uh, just like most special operations, you know, whether you call it Hell Week or uh, the Long Walk or whatever, but we have our own selection. Green Platoon is another thing that our uh, aviation guys go through. And um, I did really good at that. Again, I, I was fit at the time and uh, I, I had a blast doing it. But I, right before I left, my wife, who I'm still together, we just had our 30th anniversary. She had a, she had a moment of, well, she has a lot of moments of clarity. In fact, she's always clear. But she uh, she had some wisdom early in our marriage, and she said, "Well, why why you go special forces? Because we knew every you know we're surrounded by friends who went special forces, and they're never around. They're always going off to places." And she goes, "Well, why why would you want to be away from me?" She goes, "Maybe maybe maybe do special forces later, but I don't think you know we just got married. I don't think it's a good time." And I was like, "You know what, baby? That, that's an excellent point." But I still got to go to selection because that's what all the cool kids do at Bragg, anyways. And I did, and I got selected to be a special forces medic, which right there i knew they got the wrong guy you know i mentioned my <laughs> lack of aptitude for scholastics and the 18 delta course is the designation for the special forces the green beret medic course there's no way there's no i couldn't pass it now not that i mean i have a low bar for myself but it's just intense it's got the biggest washout rate it's the longest course of all the green beret courses um and those guys are just absolutely brilliant and so i knew i knew what that wasn't it so i turned it down um they couldn't believe it and instead, I went to officer candidate school. And uh, and that, that was kind of the big the big move, because now I'm not going to be an NCO. When I left the 82nd, I was a platoon sergeant as an E6. And I was really, really proud of that. I was in the same platoon for six years. The same platoon. I mean, from shit burning, you know, Robicherry, private Robicherry up to, you know, platoon sergeant uh, in the same platoon. I, I It broke my heart to leave it. But looking back on it, I... The, I'm so proud of those days of going through the enlisted ranks, every position in infantry platoon, and then to, to lead the guys as a, well, as a mid-grade NCO. But I, I really, I, I t those are my foundation years, man. I'm, I'm really proud that I, I served as an NCO. And in, in a lot of ways, I, I, I always imagine what would have been like if I would have stayed as an NCO if I didn't get in trouble, because there's a lot of room to get in trouble. But, I, you know, I would have been a sergeant major, you know, I, I think. And that would have been neat to continue to help develop guys. Whereas an officer, you're developing junior leaders to a degree uh, once you get more more rank. But, boy, as an NCO, I, I don't regret it, but I regret it. You know, like, I, I don't know. If there was a, a chance to do it all over again, I don't know. I mean, I'm providing for my family well now, and that's important. But boy, those years in NCO were just really something else. They were really something else. Um, okay, so fast forward, I guess, whatever. Uh, OCS, piece of cake. Infantry officer course, piece of cake. And uh, met, met an amazing guy named Jay Hansen. We met in OCS, and he got me turned into this 
this is peacetime stuff, uh, the best ranger competition. It's pretty legit, pretty legit. And he had done it a few times and he's, he's gone through a few partners uh, that, that didn't make it through or they got disqualified for different things. And he asked me to do it. And I was like, man, flattered as shit, but you got the wrong cat. Like, I'm just a runner. Like, I don't, you know, and I know my infantry shit, but I'm, you know, I, best ranger. Those guys are like best ranger competitors my whole career. Those guys are just like special detail. Like, you never see them. And when you see them, they're just running around in their ranger panties and they're fit and they're going to the range all the time. But anyway, he convinced me to do it. And uh, while we were in OCS, we took second place. Second place oh, is insane. It was absolutely insane. But, but what helped was I was a pretty decent light infantryman. And he was a fucking spectacular light infantryman. And between our NCO experiences, when it came to the tasks, plus we were fit, we, we, we grabbed second place. And then after that, we got recruited by the different divisions, would call it down to the infantry school to get Hanson and Robichaud to their unit to represent them at the next year's competition. And then sure as shit, we, we landed on the 101st Airborne. Uh, after literally offers, I didn't know the army did that, you know, like, well, if you come to this, we'll give you this and not, not like for personal gain, but we'll give you all the resources to train or we'll get you uh, a, a dedicated dietitian, or we'll get you a medic or we'll get you TDY, you know, and all these other things. And uh, we decided on our first and then the next year, Jay and I won it, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's one of the highlights of my life out, outside of uh, combat. Uh, and of course, you know, being a father, but um, up to that point, it was one of the biggest, well, the biggest accomplishment of my life. And I owe it a lot to my partner, Jay. He, he showed me how to do it and I just didn't quit on him. I think, I think that's, that was the, the recipe. So just jumping in for a second, because I'm, I, I'm familiar with that, that event as well. Not that I've done it, but you know, with a lot of Green Berets and army, army people that have been on here, what was the common denominator between not just who won it, but you know the the competitors that you were alongside that were very successful. What was it that separated them from an already elite unit that they able to enable them, excuse me, to be able to perform at that even higher level? Yeah, I think there's a lot of dudes out there that could compete, but a lot of it has to do with timing. You know what I mean? So everybody knows it's it's in May every year, and then six months prior to that, each of the divisions or the the regiment. Uh, and then even some of our allies and even the Marines that are ranger qualified, uh, they'll hold their internal competitions to, to create the team. So you get like a couple of primary, the two man teams, a couple of primary teams, a couple of alternate teams. And, uh, and that all starts, you know, six to eight months prior to the event. Um, but, but the only people that get to try out are people that are available, you know, like if you're stuck in the Sinai Peninsula doing peacekeeping, or if you're on alert status of some kind, or boy, post or even during the global war on terror i couldn't imagine all the talented and, and fit competent guys that would be competitive were just deployed you know just there's no way and that's why in a lot of ways you know i want to i want to be clear that i jay and i our success was in a peacetime army uh, you know because you know who, who knows who else out there are, are hidden champions that would never get a chance to kind of to to test themselves against uh you know similar guys so i i i, I guess that's kind of how i reflect on that question 
Yeah. And then just go into um, Desert Storm for a second. I mean, you obviously had the GWAT coming up, but prior to that, um, you know, we only have the media to feed us the information about conflicts. And I'll get to my two-part question when we get into the second part. But mm-hmm. what were what were some of the things that maybe that you witnessed firsthand, boots on the ground, that, you know, maybe weren't reported? What was your experience of desert storm through a soldier's eyes as opposed to what the media was telling the average civilian good bad or indifferent it's not a loaded question just I'm- yeah no I, yeah i don't take it that way uh well you know back then you know we didn't have armed forces network so we didn't know what was getting back during desert shield desert storm you know like there was no tv in fact there wasn't even phones like you had to wait in line you know, an hour to a couple hours in the middle of the night to get a five minute phone call, you know, to your parents, you know, so just kind of put that uh, in, uh, into a lens. Um, I, I think, and I don't know if this was reported, you know, cause we took a shit ton of prisoners, a shit ton. And the 82nd, we weren't spearhead. You know, we followed the mechanized units and it was very much a mechanized battle. Uh, the 101st did a pretty cool air assault, but again, I wasn't with the 101st then. And the Marines were doing some really cool shit in Kuwait. But for the rest of us, we were kind of doing, I guess, the antiquated term would be mop-up, mop-up operations, right? Um, you know, where we're just kind of going in behind, uh, if I recall, Desert Shield, well, excuse me, Desert Storm was just an incredibly rapid invasion, like just smoking through the Iraqi defenses and uh, the logistics, you know, I guess it was a, a champion uh, vignette of how logistics work. Uh, with with a, a pace that that's exceeding expectations, and again, as a as private robichery, I, you know, I wouldn't know shit about that. But what what I I didn't anticipate was the amount of prisoners and the compassion that we as an industrialized nation with a professional army, and I've seen this throughout GWAT too. I wish people would know either back then or even as recent um, as the conflicts now, even the current ones in in Syria, that the U.S. goes to incredible lengths to adhere by human rights, ethics, and values. The world will never know. They'll never know how much goes into collateral damage estimates. We call it CDE, particularly in special operations when you're doing precision operations and stuff it's it's an amazing thing and you can't really you can't broadcast it too much because a lot of it appropriately so is sensitive because you don't want the bad guys to plan around it and and nor will i go into details of course but i i think america knows it because we share the same values well not just america but you know our allies like they get it they get it like okay we're not animals you know we're not executing we're not you know starving our our prisoners or we're not you know, neglecting aid to civilians. But the world still thinks we're just these berserker, you know, don't give a shit animals out there. And I fought those animals. And I know, I know what humans can do to each other. And it's fucking awful, you know? But the when you unleash us, us, our allies, us of the professional military, us combatants, the enemy is fucked you know like there's they're done like there there's there's no more passion except maybe a suicide bomber i can't compete with that or a kamikaze pilot i you know i i want to go home and i want to do more damage to the enemy than just one one trick pony you know 
but but outside of that, we in the industrialized and professional armies, we we know the difference between combatant and non-combatant. And we know the difference between a target and not a target. And the amount of work that goes into assuring that, I don't think we, our allies in the US, we get credit for that. And it's too bad. It's too bad because it costs us lives. It costs us efficiency. Um, and it's the right thing to do, God forbid, you know, their Judeo-Christian ethics. Like that's that you don't treat people poorly unless they're the bad guys and then you unleash hell, you know. But there's a distinction and we we distinguish that. And I don't I don't think the world recognizes that. It's too bad. Well, this is so the two part question I, I get to is, you know, the the horrors that you saw are not like give me an example, but just, you know, the justification of the bad guys, as you said, you know, the, the violence that we send towards some people that are truly at that moment evil. But the other side is the kindness and compassion. You've kind of, you know, already answered that in a way. The number of stories that I've had, because I asked this specifically two-sided um, question of, you know, the the kindness and compassion that was towards the, the indigenous population that were injured, that was um, you know the the kindness from the indi indigenous population towards the military, the kindness towards the indigenous population's animals. You know the U.S. Army veterinarians helping animals. I mean, it just it's, it's this unending list of kindness and compassion, which is contrasted by the fact that you're in the middle of a war. But we don't get that. We don't get the the horrors of war conversation, which we should because the recruiting videos make it look like a, an awesome summer camp that young men can go to, you know, but then you also have, you don't hear the, this is what we're doing over there. The hearts and mind, the real hearts and mind, not some, you know, political phrase, but what our men and women are doing, handing out water and fixing wells and building schools and repairing roads. We don't get that conversation either. So this is it for me. It's removing the politics out of it and putting the humanitarian effort, which might be building or it might be eliminating tyrants that are, you know, murdering a population. Yeah, uh, only because I recently retired and I was teaching this for a while uh, in my last assignment. Uh, the name's probably changed by now. Again, I'm antiquated by three years, but doctrine moves fast. And I'm going to sound like a total doctrine nerd right now, but uh, the army approached uh, multi-domain operations or multi-domain warfare and the different domains as you would, you know, land, sea, air, space, uh, cyber. Uh, and then the one that, in, you know, particularly in the Green Beret community, not all U.S. special operations, because not all U.S. special operations uh, deal in what we refer to as the human domain. And the human domain, uh, I, I'm, I'm all in on that Kool-Aid. Like you, if you can dominate the human domain and you can influence uh, the populations and the uh, the center of gravity for that country is probably the well, it could be the military, it could be the people, it could be a dictator, it could be resources. But it's typically, it's always the common denominator is the people. And if you can demonstrate, again, this is from a Green Beret perspective, because we operate so much in the human domain. If you, and through civil affairs and psyops, and, and just by example, and working with, by, with, and through, you know, their indigenous people. And then if it's a, if it's unconventional warfare, then, you know, you're working on the other side, whereas you're trying to encourage people to overthrow their government. And you're providing them the resources and the training and the inspiration to do that. 
but th- th- that's th- that's the key is the human domain for sure. And and you you demonstrate that or you inspire that by by having civility and, and appealing to people's Maslow hierarchy of needs. You know, and then you identify with them. And, but you've got to be sincere. I mean, you can fake, you can lie, especially through an interpreter. It's easy because they lie to us, not the interpreters. But if you don't know that culture, then, you know, people are lying to you. And, you, you know, you're probably I don't necessarily lying to them because you're 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 on the path of the righteous and you want what's best for them, whether it's overthrowing a government or defeating an insurgency. It comes down to the humans. It just comes down to the humans, because if a country doesn't have the human capital support, then that country fails. Right. Whether they will rise up and change a regime or they'll stop working or they'll, uh, you know, in other passive or or active ways of of resisting, you know, so. There, there's a lot to it, um, but but the the human domain. I don't know if that became doctrine, but I know in our community, the Green Beret community, we we focus a lot on that because that that is the common denominator, regardless of the military objective. Total tangent. My perspective, James Gearn's perspective of the last two administrations, is that there has been a very deliberate divisive element to it you know to me a true leader unifies especially under crisis and the last two which are both sides of the aisle have divided and in my opinion it's making our country weaker and weaker and weaker with the background that you have as a green beret and obviously you guys with the force multipliers you were the ones working with people you're probably the the most diplomatic of all the special forces special operations groups what is your perspective on community and unity in this country? And if you see any problem whatsoever, you're king for a day. What can we do to move the needle back to patriotism and unity? Yeah, these are particularly going into this next election season, two polar opposite approaches or, or ideals, idealism. Um, so this, this is a tough one. <laughs> this is a tough one. But, you know, Jane, I'm I'm comforted in, you know, I, I still travel the world. Well, we did it together as an example. Um, but but even the different conflict conflict zones that I, I still get a chance to pitch in wise in a humanitarian sense. We're still a young country, you know, and I find comfort in that. Like we're young, really young. And I think this is part of the growing pains. So I'm, I have faith and I am optimistic. We're going to figure it out, but it's not to say it's going to be easy. Um, I think in a lot of ways, socially, we are becoming more aware of each other. Um, and that's cool. And that, that needs to be there for, for us all to kind of start rowing generally in the same direction instead of opposite directions. So. Yeah, this is where we got, you know, going to the election season, two personalities that couldn't be further apart. Uh, and then with them come their policies and, and stuff like that. And I'm, I mean, I watch the news, but because I don't have time to research my own shit. Um, but I'm not naive. I, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll get through it. You know, we'll, we'll get through it. I, I, this is growing pains, man. We're, we're, we're on our way to greatness. We, we haven't topped out. It's, we're going to figure it out. I, I, I think we just need to take stock of, of, of how well we're doing socially, how well we're doing. 
how well we're integrating with each other um, and, and take stock. It's not all doom and gloom. And then when, as you mature, I assume in an organization or a community or a firehouse or a team room that by, by gaining awareness, you know, and whether it's through protests or, you know, sometimes unfortunately and unnecessarily, you know, violent protests, you, you learn more about all the, all the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, all the different perspectives. And then you learn from it. And then, and then in time, things change to address them to where it's a medium. So I, I don't think it's as bad, uh, but I'm in a beautiful part of Ohio, surrounded by a bunch of hardworking farmers and, and devout uh, Amish people. Um, so it's quite Shangri-La we're on that. Um, but even traveling around the world, you know, with uh, cultures and governments that are centuries old, um, you know, they they throw stones at the at us with criticism. But I'm like, man, just give us a chance. We're like toddlers, you know. <laughs> And it shows sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we got this Declaration of Independence, and it seems like it was a good starting point. But let's let's continue to grow. I think we'll be all right. Yeah, no, I, that's just the thing. I think the American people are wonderful people, and I think this is the sad thing: is that we firstly allow really extremists to be the soundboard of our whole nation, and then secondly, we have a selection process that out of 333 million people every four years we end up having to choose the and i quote lesser of two evils so to me if there's a national awakening where we actually demand a change in how we choose the people so they don't have to be corrupt and millionaires to participate i think that's how we're gonna move forward away from this divisive you know pick a side in, in Flanders field mentality that we have now and more like, okay, it wasn't my ideal choice, but they're still not bad, which is where we need to get to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree with you for sure. Yeah. We'll be all right. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well then moving on, obviously you got into the military way before nine 11. So what was your nine 11 experience through your eyes? And then how did that shift your military trajectory? Yeah, it's actually quite a slow start uh, just because of the unit I got assigned to. Um, so I was in, so Green Berets, we, you know, our our, our selection course is really short, uh, but intense. And then assuming you make it, then you go to the qualification course. And then there's like four or five qualification courses based on your specific job. And of course, I got slated towards the officer one. After being an infantry officer, you know, I switched over to special forces officer. Um, and, and that course is, it's all right. You know, I mean, it's, it's all right. Meaning I, 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 I did all right. It was fine. You know, I, I finished out, you know, uh, with, with some awards, but, uh, I was in part of our training is language and cultural training. And then your language and cultural training is attached to, or it influences what unit you'll be assigned to. So green berets are regionally assigned around the world. Um, and then in it, you're supposed to be culturally uh, aware. You don't have to be an expert unless you, you know, you were born into that culture. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you. I can say this now that I'm a retiree. Uh, I think a lot of our assignment also has to do with our own ethnicity or at least how we look. So I got assigned to a European unit, a unit that focuses on Europe, which later led to my uh, opportunity to command a NATO, uh, special operations task force. Uh, a couple years ago um 
So I, I, I stayed in that unit. I stayed European centric. And as such, I was assigned Russian, a Russian language and Russian culture training. Um, and, and, and that really helped me out because some of the stuff I did in Europe, I blend, you know, I'm of Mediterranean ancestry. So I, I blended really, really well around Europe. Um, I kind of stuck out in Norway, but man, do I blend in Italy, you know what I mean? <laughs> or, or other places. So, uh, that, that really helps out, uh, particularly, I mean, if you get to the, like the core of the green beret thing, uh, when it comes to, um, clandestine missions or places where you have to blend in and if you don't open your mouth you probably blend in real well the minute you open your mouth you know they'll peg you as being a, a non-native or whatever but you got to have a cultural and language training to to be effective communicator uh and not not do you know faux pas in that culture or or whatever and then you know even language just so you can kind of make out the headlines in the newspaper or not sound like a complete idiot at the bar you know, if, if, if you're on mission, um, just do the best you can. So uh, Europe was was definitely my thing. And I was in language school when the buildings got hit. I was in language school and we all ran to the common area. I say ran, you know, there was a big, you know, people like, hey, everybody get to the common area. That's where the TVs were. And we're just like, holy shit. And then the medics got pulled away because language, all the MOSs reconvene. Uh, after your specific uh, courses, you reconvene for language and uh, culture training. And all the medics were pulled aside. And they're like, everybody, all you medics report because we're brag, you know, and it's just right up by 95. And so there was an idea that they were going to assemble to rush up to D.C. with eight bags, you know, because they were all beyond the EMTP. Like, you know, they're all, you know, surgery and stuff like that. So there was talk of that. And I thought that was that was a. That, when the medics were pulled aside, I was like, wow, this is for real. It's not just on TV. Like, it's a concrete evidence that we're about to mobilize students, medical students. Well, I mean, they've already passed their course um, on the buses and just beeline right up 95 to help. I'm like, OK, well, th this is this is this is no shit. Um, but but after that, of course, going through the Q course, everybody's ramped up. Everybody's ramped up. Afghanistan kicked off first and then Iraq a year later or so. Um, but unless you were in those groups, some of us didn't get involved in global war on terror for a long time. And when I say global war on terror, I mean specifically Afghanistan or Iraq, like boots on or the Philippines or the Trans-Sahel in Africa. Like that, that was the concrete global war on terror. Now, under, under GWAT, as we call it, global war on terror, under GWAT, we would be doing, uh, non-combat missions with allies, but we're tied to defeating terrorism globally, right? Generally through training or intelligence, right? So globally, we were everywhere, even if you weren't in the Philippines, the Trans-Sahel of Africa. Afghanistan or Iraq. We weren't in Syria at the time. Um, so, and that, that was a lot of my involvement for at least, yeah, 2003. So I didn't go to, where did I go first? Iraq, Baghdad until 2006. So yeah, it was like three or four years before I was on the ground in a combat zone, despite having done a lot of uh, compartmentalized things around the world 
but the actual, uh, it, you know, boots on the ground, as they say, it's kind of a conventional term, but, um, yeah, it took, it took a while before I got there, but once, once I got there, you know, it was, it, it was, it was actually kind of old hat, meaning it was absolutely everything you trained for, you know, because in a lot of ways, in my opinion, direct combat is relatively simple. And, and I don't want to be misperceived as uh, being cavalier. It's simple in that it's exactly what you train for. I mean, you have to adapt and the enemy adapts and you have to counter adapt and all that. I'm not dismissing the creativity required and the flexibility and uh, uh, agility, mental agility or otherwise. I'm not dismissing that. I'm just saying a lot of when you when you're when you're in the world of special operations, a lot of stuff you do, there is no there is no doctrine. There is no battle drill for it. Like you got to think on your feet. Uh, the first mission I ever did as a Green Beret. First thing as a solo. Um, I didn't even have a command yet. I didn't have a team. Boom. Embassy evacuation in Africa. Months after getting to Stuttgart. You know, Captain Robichaud, you get assigned a weapon yet? I'm like, no, sir. And he's like, well, go grab one. Get to the airfield. You're going to Africa. I'm like, you bet. Yes, sir. And then you got to figure that shit out. Like, just figure shit out. Just get down there. And resources come in and embassy comes in and helicopters show up out of nowhere that we hired. Or, and now we're like flying people out of an embassy. And you blink. And you're like, you know, 96 hours ago, I was in Stuttgart doing hand receipts. You know, now that there's no book on that. There's nothing, you know, but but through our selection process, they they select. And I'm not tooting my own horn because I'm just I'm just another douchebag, you know, but but they select people that have that agility, that have that problem solving, that have that creativity. But when you get to war, it's like, OK, I have to conduct this type of mission. Well, for this type of mission, I know that ideally I would like these type of assets and I would like to do this. and I like to do that. And then you go into it with a plan. And of course, depending on what the enemy does, but you've already thought it, especially as hyper planners as we are in special operations. Um, you know, we have, we call it a pace plan, right? Primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency plans for everything. You're, you're already, the enemy did this. Well, fortunately, I kind of thought of that, you know, and then, ooh, the enemy did this. You're like, well, not surprised. I'm going to have to do something different, but I'm, I'm not out of my comfort zone. Whereas, again, a lot of the, I don't want to sound like it's over sexy, but some of the other, I mean, why, you know, I'm not even going to call it what I want to call it. We'll just say in the sphere of special operations missions, you you got to be creative, man. you know, and it's great. It's great combat. And that's why I say it's simpler, not easier, but it's simpler. It, it makes more sense. It's more if then. Whereas these other missions are just like, what the fuck? And you just, you just, you just come up with some really, really good solutions. So I'll get to the, the the question I was talking about before. Then, so you're in Afghanistan, you're in Iraq at this point now. You know, over the next few years, the the way, as I mentioned before, that we are fed information, especially when it comes to war. You know, and, and again, kind of based on our political conversation a second ago, you have the right wing, you have the left wing, you have the you know, kill them all, stack bodies, rock music, and then you have baby killers. You know, the other side. And in the middle are the men and women or children that we send overseas with an American flag on their shoulder to serve. So regardless of the politics, was there a moment, you know, when you got to whichever country where you realized, okay, there are some horrific people committing atrocities to the people of that country that do need to be taken care of? 
Yeah. Uh, boy, I got a prime example. Prime example. I haven't brought this story up in a long time. So I was part of a small advisory team to an Iraqi unit in East Baghdad, 06 and 07. Incredibly kinetic. It was insane. The height of the EFPs, the explosively formed projectile, IEDs, uh, right, uh, the improved explosive devices. So uh, it was brutal. It, it was absolutely brutal. Um, yeah, kinetic is the best way I can say it. Like it was just, it was nonstop. Being, being in the city and being assigned to an Iraqi piece of shit, Iraqi unit. You know, I won't hold anything back. They, they were awful. And, and here, here's, here's an example. Um, so they took some prisoners and they're back on our base. It's an Iraqi base. We're the only Americans on it. And one of my guys come running in with his hair on fire. They called me chief at the time. They're like, chief, chief, they're, they're fucking beating up the prisoners. I'm like, what prisoners? I'm like, oh, they brought prisoners in. So you got to come and he's, he's running for an aid bag or something. And I'm like, holy shit ball. So we go running over there. Uh, I think I had my pistol with me. Of course I would. Yeah. But I, I think I was like in my Ranger panties or something. And we run over to the other building and you, you're just fighting through the crowd. There's like just Iraqi soldiers all in this one building. And there's a hallway, almost like a, a class classrooms in a hallway, if you will. Right. And we're fighting through, fighting through. And we finally break through because I had a lot of respect within that unit, within the Iraqis. They, they thought I was nuts, which may or may not be true. So they I had a lot of respect. So you know, when people would turn around and see me pulling them back, you know, they would kind of make a hole because they, they knew who I was. And when I got into the room, there were these five prisoners beat the fuck up. Like, it looked like a butcher room. And they were all kind of lined up, taking turns. Everybody had bloody hands. All the AKs had bloody buttstocks. And they were killing. They were killing these prisoners. And, you know, I immediately just started, you know, slipping on the floor. There's vomit everywhere from the head injuries and just blood everywhere. And I was fucking pushing them back. And I didn't draw my gun out. It wasn't anything like that. But again, I, because I had a pretty good reputation or whatever, uh, I was kind of fighting them off of the prisoners. And they're in different levels of consciousness or, or whatever. And, you know, they're all cowered up or unconscious. And uh, about then, some of the other officers, their officers started making making their way in. And uh, we had to push everybody out of the room and start treating these guys. And uh, it was awful. Um, and then we, we, the U.S., arranged for uh, our closest U.S. base to take these prisoners in. Um, and uh, we did. In fact, I jumped in the back of a Humvee, Ranger panties and my Beretta, you know, and my flippy floppies, I think. <laughs> Uh, and we drove, you know, a short distance, but we had a break gate to get to the the American hospital unit. And, you know, I'm kind of giving him a rundown as a medic, you know, from, from back in the day. And I was like, you know, hey, this guy's, you know, he's not looking good. And this guy's, you know, in and out of consciousness and LOC and all that stuff. And and then they did really, it was kind of cool to be in the middle of a hospital ER. Uh, I, I haven't had to be because I, I was never a patient, but. You know, the, the surgeon just kind of stands in the middle of like these five bays and he's just taking input from all five of the trauma nurses. And so, okay. And I just standing there like watching this guy in awe. It was, it was really a sight to be seen. And then he'd go plug in where he needs to give directions and he'd hear something from another nurse. He'd go over to that and literally just a few steps away, but he was monitoring these five bays. And, uh, that was a, that was, that was awful. 
That was fucking barbaric Neanderthal shit, man. And it wasn't cool. And uh, I was really taken aback that here was this unit that I was integrated with. And I, I know they come from violent backgrounds and it's a violent culture. And I've intervened in houses during raids or whatever where they would be kicking prisoners. And I come in and they'd like, stop. You know, I'd be like, fucking stop hitting the prisoners, man. Like, that's not cool. You know, and I turn my back and walk out and I hear, <clears throat> you know, the kicks and the, the the shoe shower, you know, and I'd be like, I run back. I'm like, stop. And they're like, what? We're not doing anything. I'm like, the fuck you're not. You know, you got blood on your boot. Leave the guy alone. And so, you know, on objective, you, you do what you can, but there's a lot more going on on the objective. And but this was this was bad, man. This was like they were going to they were going to bludgeon these guys to death. And I think a couple of them had stab wounds, if I recall. So I was like, you know, what? What the hell are we doing here? It, it's it's snakes eating snakes. It was snakes eating snakes, and I, you know, the the advisory team, and you know, we we reflected on it, and we're just like, what are we working with? Like, how, you can't you can't train that out of them, you know. Maybe make an impact with the officers because they just have slightly more scholastic experience, maybe. And by the way, that's Iraq. Don't even get me started about fucking Afghanistan. You know, I, there was a uh, an embassy guy or whatever I had a coffee with in Baghdad, and I just gotten there, uh, and I was kind of making my rounds, introducing myself to different parts of the embassy. And he said, "He goes, all right, well, you have experience in Iraq." And I'm like, "Yeah, I, I do." And he goes, "Well, if if Iraq was the Jetsons, Afghanistan is the Flintstones." And I was like, fuck me. Like, you got to be shitting me. Like, it's it's that bad? He's like, you have no idea. He goes, Iraq is light years ahead in civilization compared to Afghanistan. And uh, I'll be honest with you, he was right. He was right. It's uh, It just blows me away how, you know, they're in uniform. And they receive human rights training. Because we always do human, you know, Leahy Act and human rights training is 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 paramount day one classes and then you think you're making progress you know and you, you you think you think you're building rapport and then uh they just go they just trip back to just the brutality that either their culture or what they've been exposed to or how they were treated i mean i don't, I don't know does everybody get beat by their dads <laughs> why is everybody so mean to the defenseless now, don't get me wrong. They're scumbags. They're prisoners. You know, they probably killed one of their buddies that day. I get it. But I I would never kill a combatant. I would never, I've never beat up a combatant. They're not in the fight anymore. But that's, that's inherent to professional training, I reckon. So I guess that's an example. That really threw me back that despite being in uniform, despite being on a base, despite having a rank structure, despite formal training, that they could still revert back to the this Neanderthal behavior. Yeah, that was shitty. Yeah, well, it's amazing again. All these stories that I hear. Um, you know, I had uh, Wally Taslin, who was a Iraqi commando, who now was with the Black Rifle guys. Um, they they he got over here, but you know, you hear from um, you know Fahim Fazli, who's Iraqi. Oh, excuse me, who's Afghani, who ended up being in Hollywood and then went back to be an interpreter with the Marines for a few years. Some of these countries were in such a better place before, you know, and, we, you know, we talk about that, you know, you look at 
Afghanistan. I think it was, if I'm not wrong, the the seventies. You know, they they weren't, you know, being being um, forced to wear, you know, head to toe burkas and all these kind of things. And so to to kind of slip backwards so quickly, I think this is what's so heartbreaking, especially with the withdrawal. Like people think, oh, we just took you know the American soldiers out. It's like no, we. These, those poor Afghanis now are even further from getting back to where they were before this this tyranny began, and it's just heartbreaking because once you get through a generation or two, now the new children don't even know what their country should be like because they're so disconnected from you know how it is now. Yeah, I I think about that from time to time. The dichotomy of progress in the world and then how some countries get stuck or they, they fall backwards in uh, civilization. I, that, that's a study for scholars, man. And my hat's off to them and I'll, I'll catch the history channel specials. You know, uh, I, I do find it interesting. I, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's on a massive scale. Mm, you know, Saddam was an absolute animal, but people, well, I don't know if they were civil based on my experiences, but it was it was functioning, I guess. Right. It had colleges and it had research scientists and it had uh, industrialization. Um, I mean, not worth it with a dictator, you know, that kills and rapes and genocides. So it's not worth it. But but there's there's something we said for in general. I don't know if there's something we said now. I sound like a dick. But but a heavy handedness in some cultures, maybe, maybe, maybe that keeps things going. Maybe it's a, a real tough judicial system, you know, or uh, a really strict immigration system. I mean, there's other ways to uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going way out of my league here, but there's other ways to control your population. You know, outside of brutality, I guess, in, in the interest of moving the country along. Absolutely. Well, just revisiting the other side of that conversation, kindness and compassion. Now we're in, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan. Were there are there moments where you know you can think, despite this populace being, you know, amidst a war in their town, their city, that you witness kindness and compassion amidst that battlefield? Oh, Afghanistan, not so much. Uh, I'll tell you, there's something about Muslim culture that I absolutely took away with me and I try to use all the time. And that is hospitality. All right. The culture, and I'm not getting into Islam. I'm just talking the culture, right? They are absolutely, well, I'm going to use the term fanatical, but in a good way. They're incredibly fanatical about welcoming people into their homes. Like the whole shirt off your back thing is absolutely a thing. And when someone comes to uh, a, a Muslim family's house or even a village and they are falling over themselves to make you comfortable, to keep you fed. There was a thing in Iraq. I've, I've been in so many raids and I learned that there was a cultural thing in Iraq and I'm sure it transcends into other uh, Muslim countries and that is a wife's competency in in large part was based on her ability to host guests 
And, and one of the telltale signs, and I, I asked my interpreter, who, by the way, I brought home, uh, amazing guy, and now he's an E7 in the U.S. Army, uh, Balsam. Uh, that, that's a whole story in and of itself. Uh, but B Balsam told me, I asked him one day, I go, why is it every time I inspect a closet, it's chocked full of blankets? Like, it's just blankets everywhere. Always blankets or the, the egg foam padding. Like beyond the amount of people in the house. And he said it's because homes have to repair to take in travelers. They have to. And if you're if you don't have enough blankets and linens for people to rest their heads on, then you're 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 not doing right by the culture. And then that household will be judged on its ability to host and, and be hospitable. And I I think that is incredibly uh generous and i i i mean i i'm a nice guy i love people that come and visit and i take care of them but i to, to take it to that level i was like man that's that's really admirable yeah that, that's one of my big takeaways beautiful yeah and i hear that a lot too and i think even in afghanistan um the Marcus Luttrell's story, you know, Lone Survivor, the film, right on. I think yep. sold short the absolute immense sacrifice that that one village made in protecting this American seal when, you know, they're being beaten and they could all obviously be smite off the, the face of the earth and their village burned to the ground. But that duty to protect someone when they come into your community, I wish it had been told better in the film but i mean the book it is i mean they they risked everything and i think it's that same whatever the, the the term was in in um in that country specifically was you know once you come into my home then we have a duty to protect you which i thought was was amazing it's beautiful it's beautiful and that, that's an excellent example yeah that's a thing it's absolutely a thing yep brilliant yeah, very well yeah well i know this is a big you know uh, topic that we want to get to so i want to make sure that we do you serve for three plus decades. One of the resounding common denominators, I think, when it comes to struggle, especially in uniform professions, military first responder, is that transition out. It could be obviously being fired, it could be getting hurt, um, but obviously the other, you know, the most natural one is retirement. Um, but mm -hmm. you have this purpose, you have this incredibly close knit tribe. Um, you know, you have a reason to get up every morning, and then one day you don't. So talk to me about your experience with the transition out. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. I, I do want to, I do want to share this because uh, it brings me a lot of emotional health, I think in, in what I've charted over the, the past few years since I've separated from the military. Um, first and foremost, being a father, right? So I was, for one reason or another, uh, Lori and I, uh, we didn't have Luke until we were in our, until we were 40. And fortunately, that was after a lot of my deployment time. I still travel a lot in the military and I still travel a lot now, uh, volunteering, but, but that, that was a big, big, I mean, Luke was just a baby when I was going off to wars and, uh, to be home or at least, uh, to be involved in his life is a blessing that the majority of us don't have. The majority of us are trying to father over Skype from, you know, from Kandahar or, you know, from Niami or wherever, like 
like I, I've, I've been spared that. And I, I get to dive into fatherhood. Um, and that means that means the world to me. So I think that that is one uh, pillar mm, of emotional strength that I get. I get, I get to really focus on being a dad. Uh, then the other thing I did is I picked up a hobby that I, I, I was never exposed to before. And once I started getting into it, I can't breathe without thinking about it. And it's, I got into bow hunting, archery hunting. And I, it, there's so many similarities between patrolling and hunting. The list goes on. Like it's insane. And what I really enjoy about hunting, and I never knew this about myself, is the solitude. Like I'm an, I'm a very extrovert. I mean, four beers in me and my shirt's off and I'm climbing on shit. You know, like I'm I'm still that 22-year-old, unfortunately, in a lot of ways. He's dressing up as but a polar bear on a plane. I just did it this weekend on a four-wheeler <laughs> the cookout. Same, I'll send you a picture of it. Um, <laughs> And, and, and so it's important to have a hobby. And, and, and I think it, it has to be a hobby uh, where it doesn't have to be, excuse me. What I found worked for me is a hobby that requires solitude, but it's, it's, it's a learning curve to try and outthink an animal and you're in their environment. But I also get to apply like all the patrolling principles, you know, and uh, moving around the woods at night and playing with my scent. And then archery, you have to get really close to these animals that don't want you close to them. And, and you know, and then I do bring uh, a bit of an ethics back to that compassion thing. When I hunt, like I don't, I don't shoot an animal unless I have a clear path to the heart. You know, and, and for me, a successful hunt is just being close to the animal. You know, if I get to bring home and we donate a lot of meat because I will, they call it tag out. I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll get my freezer filled. And then if I still have more permits, then we, we donate the meat, um, you know, to, to some of the, the kitchens here. But a good hunt to me is it's just it's just defeating the animals. Defenses and getting so close to the animal, uh, whether I get a shot or not, because, again, unless that shoulder moves for me or unless because I'm not that great of a shot. So they got to be really close because I'm ethical as fuck. You know, like it's, it's about the chase. And I really, really, really enjoy that. And my learning curve has been incredibly stimulating and it, it really keeps me engaged. And I, 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 I learned a lot about myself sitting in trees or climbing trees about being alone and just reflecting on life. I, I've never done that before. I've never, never wanted it. And I find that I really crave it. I crave it. And the more, <laughs> and then the more miserable the conditions are, the more I enjoy it. You know, especially up here in Ohio, like the last season I had ski into the woods, you know, just because it's up to my waist or mid thigh, you know, and I got to move in stealthily, you know, and uh, if it's miserable, man, I just love just welcome to Suckville, you know, like, oh, Roby, you're back. Welcome to Suckville. Like this sucks. I'm like, yeah, this really stuck freezing my finger, you know, cold weather injuries or whatever, like, but I absolutely love it. So. Uh, I, I think and I would encourage people in transition, regardless from the lifestyle they came from, when you're switching out, you, you got to find something else to do. Um, and and James, yours is, I would assume, these amazing podcasts. And uh, what I would like to applaud as an example, what, what you what you've dove into is is bettering the community 
through sharing and bringing in, you know, people much more interesting than myself uh, to contribute to the community as we all try and figure out this, this next chapter in our lives that, that isn't, isn't everything that we trained for and wanted for. And it's not everything that we were particularly good at. And now we're thrown into this next chapter and it's not as thrilling. It's not as high risk. And by thrilling, I mean, good or bad, exhilarating, good or bad. And now we're in a steady state. You know, I get to sleep in a bed every night. Like, that's nice, you know, and I, I get to see my son every day that I'm in the country and um, I get to spend time with my wife and my dogs in this beautiful house. Like I'm, it's, it's, it's a lot different than everything that led up to this. It's completely different. And I think by diving into a passion, whether it's talking about this very thing for over 800 podcasts or just being some guy who's freezing his ass off in the woods, you know, you got to dive into something. Um, and I guess the the other one that I did is I really got into volunteering. Now, this is a direct translation to my experiences in special operations and the multicultural thing that's inherent to the Green Berets. Um, I'm not really, well, I do know how it came about. So it was a, with the Kabul evacuation, a friend reached out to me and then we built this quick organization and we got some crazy donors and we chartered aircraft and we were part of the air bridge. Um, incredibly proud, incredibly proud of, uh, our, our, our collective contribution to that. Um, and, and then I, I, in it, I was finally up 18 hours a day mission planning. You know, I was deployed to the Middle East. Like I was back in my comfort zone, sleep deprivation and uh, crisis management and life and death. And I, I was thrown back into it unexpectedly. And I realized how much I missed it. Uh, and then that led me to, okay, well, let's do more volunteering. Again, I'm, I'm just incredibly fortunate with between the pension and you know that I, I can afford to be retired and uh so let's let's keep volunteering and it feels so good to share what little i bring to the table in crisis areas around the world um and especially on a volunteer basis like i i should probably make money doing it in all fairness in terms of my family but i'm not compelled to because there's a there's a there's another layer to humanitarian work when when you can afford to not take money for it, um, and I didn't know this. This is a, again another discovery uh, for me personally, um, and I really enjoy. It. So the my my current project is uh, de humanitarian demining in Ukraine, and I've been with this organization. It's called Tip of the Spear Landmine Removal. Tip of the Spear. Our founder Ryan Hendrickson is this amazing Green Beret. And, he was he was doing it by himself for over oh, was it a year, and then he he started asking for help. And he wanted to expand his effort into a, a no shit organization, and uh, I, I mean I could talk about Ryan all day. He's an amazing guy, and he asked me to come on as his chief of operations. So uh, since then we've made several trips over there, and we're 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 focusing on agricultural demining because you know as of a couple months ago it's deemed the most landmined country in the world, which says a lot because that just happened. You know what I mean? If you think about it, um, and these, all this time Russia had to layer the defenses and then the hasty, hasty defenses that Ukraine put in during the invasion. And now you got reintegrated parts of land that, you know, Ukraine is getting back. 
Um, and it's just mind, mind, mine. And in the world of mine warfare, right, it makes sense that the agricultural land, you can mine it because you get to cover its defensive now. You don't have to dig in troops or commit limited resources. You just mine the shit out of it and you're going to get the same block, turn, disrupt or uh, delay, you know, on an aggressor. So, so tons of landmines and we, uh, we focus on the humanitarian side, which is agricultural demining uh, because of the enormous responsibility Ukraine's breadbasket has on the, the world food supply, particularly to Africa. And they're not farming, you know, and it's not just agricultural farm. It also includes, you know, livestock and, and the other parts of agriculture besides just the swaths of land of sunflower and, um, you know, wheat and all the other uh, grains. So uh, we're we're growing and it's been incredibly rewarding. We're, we're leaving in a few weeks to do another trip. Uh, train of eyes assist sounds kind of green beret esque uh, as a you know they're not Russian but I got to say my Russian language training came back like out of nowheresville so my hats off to the schoolhouse about however they trained me to meet the minimum standard to graduate by the skin of my teeth again again because I don't you know I'm not real smart um, man that first checkpoint I came up with durka 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 like it all came back. <laughs> Not all of it, not all of it, but it was God, God bless that school. Whatever adult learning model they had to put something away and then it just comes out of nowhere. They, they did it, or at least they had me figured out. So that's really contributed, I think, uh, to my, uh, to my contributions on, on the team. Uh, yeah, we'll be back over there in a few weeks. Uh, it's a nonprofit. Um, it's a registered NGO, non-government organization. So it's a 501c3 here in the States, and it's a registered NGO with the Ukrainian government. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're always, I encourage anyone to check it out. It's Landmine, I wrote it down. Yeah, land, landmineremoval, one word, dot org. Landmineremoval.org. And we are always welcoming donations or prayers or encouraging words uh, if anyone wants to check that out. So. Uh, I guess in summary, and I appreciate you, you know, let me run my suck here for a little bit. Um, I think what's really helped me since separation is, and, and change of life is really focusing on my family, which I've neglected for well, you know, over 30 years with my wife. Uh, that's great. And, and I make a lot of decisions so that I can, I can really embrace the opportunity I have with my family, um, picking up a new hobby. And then finding another passion or or something that kind of relates uh, to my experiences and being put to good use in humanitarian humanitarian sense. I, I I think that's what's helped me out, James. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of common denominators that I hear over and over again. I think the first thing is just because we wore a uniform, that's not the only way to serve. And we are servants. You know, we did join the military, the first responder professions to make the world a little bit better. So when you trans out, transition out the other end, especially if you get sucked into that focusing on pensions and benefits bullshit, which really is, you know, so far from the burning desire to serve, people come out the other end and they feel lost. But firstly, like you said, the just finding another way to help the world you could be a sports coach you could be you know as you said you could remove landmines in in the ukraine whatever your thing is you could write a book you, 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 there's so many other ways to serve and when you wake up and you still have purpose and it's still kind podcasts. of podcasts 
Yeah, exactly. And that's what I did. It is. And write books. Yeah. Very admirable. Yeah. So, but the other thing is funny. You talked about finding solace now, you know, in time on, on your own. I had a guest on a while ago now who wrote a book called The Introvert's Edge. And his definition of an introvert versus an extrovert is an, it, where do you get your power from? Where do you recharge? So you said after four beers, I'm up on the bar, my shirt off. I think a lot of us, if we really actually look in the mirror, are introverts. Because for me, I have no problem being in you know, large groups. But I'm also the guy that once I kind of hit my point, then I'm just going to go go home, you know, and I and I recharge from time with my son, time with my wife, time with my dog. And then that allows me to go be around lots of groups of people again. But I think a lot of us culturally think, you know, that the life of the party is who we're supposed to be. You aspire to be that, you know, that, you know, fire at, at a yeah, the, the sense of the nucleus of whatever. And the reality is, I think that's a rarity that most of us actually are not supposed to be on our own all the time because that, that kind of goes against the tribal element that is a human being. But we're not supposed to be the center of attention either. We're part of a community. So I think that's a real aha moment. You may have been the firehouse joker or the team room you know, comedian, but then you get out the other end and then you're like, actually, I kind of like just being with my son just being in the woods with a bow in my hand whatever it is and i think that's hard for some people because that goes against what you know we're told you need to be the popular guy or do you you know or actually is this when you're recharging you just didn't realize it for decades and decades man that's an excellent point i can't wait to link up with you again i'd love to talk more about that i i was hanging on your every word uh yeah, uh, I guess I can relate to that because I, I didn't know I would enjoy freezing my nuts off in a tree. <laughs> you know, like I didn't know, I didn't know, you know, the, the, sneaking into the woods and strategizing and reading the winds and weather reports and, you know, that that's all fine. But once you're up in the tree and you got to start putting snivel gear on and you're just miserable, but there's a, like I said, there's a solace. There's a, it's kind of nice being alone in a tree yeah there you go that's the name of uh your book my next alone in no, a tree <laughs> I, I haven't read any books i, I can't even I, I don't like to read so um yeah alone in a tree that's nice i'm gonna reflect on that man thank you You're, you always bring up this this great you know like we talked about adrenal fatigue you know on that bus in africa uh in egypt um i've been given that a lot of thought you know about what what throws my hair back anymore? Um, I bought an electric skateboard and I keep eating shit on it. And my whole left side's all fucking scuffed up because I got a one wheel. And but I'm trying to find a thrill, you know, and I I I, I don't I, I guess you, some of my visits to Ukraine, there's some thrilling things, but but there I'm still, you know, we, we talked about that and well, of course it's a podcast and so no one would know about that conversation. But I, I remember like when we skydived over the pyramids. That was awesome, but the skydive wasn't it for me. It was, you know, the amazing view and, you know, an incredible jump master and, you know, just coming down through the pyramids and stuff was cool. And then when we got to England, that base jump, I did a tandem base jump with Sean uh, Chuma and, and that was really low, you know, that was freaking, I don't know what it was, was like off, 300 off a crane. crane. Yeah. Yeah. 
no room for error. But guess how high my heart rate got? Yeah. I was like, well, we're high, you know, and, but I had a lot of confidence in Sean and these other amazing guys. And, you know, I, I was very, very comfortable with them, but I remember the bus ride there. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm finally going to get the shit scared out of me again. You know, I'm finally going to get that. I'm going to feel alive, like uber sensory overload. Like this is going to be it. I've been looking for this since combat, you know, like, you know, you're never so alive as you are closer to death or something like that. I'm like, this is going to be it. This is going to be it. And we jumped and I was like, that was cool. You know, and, and, and again, nothing on the base jumping community. This, this is not, I'm, I'm not ripping on anyone. My personal threshold for losing my breath, I, I can't seem to find it. I can't seem to find it. And maybe I'm not supposed to, but I feel like I am. Did you, were you, can you remember of times where you were early in your career? Three years and years and years of high adrenaline, you know, combat and training. Yeah, I mean, combat, right? I mean, combat the whole time. That, that right? And it goes back to that. And I didn't make it up. Maybe I did. I don't know. But the closer you are to death, the more you feel alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then how do you find that? Because it's addictive. But, then, oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me, how do you find that in a healthy way? There's plenty of careless uh, cavalier ways to do it, but you owe your family better than that. I, I, like, I'm not going to get into base jumping. I, I love it. I'm so turned on. The guys that we traveled with are these, like, bigger than life souls. Like, they're just so infectious. Uh, but I, I just can't. You know, I'm a dad. Like, I can't. Just my my personal values. You know, I I could do skydiving, you know, where there's altitude and time to unfuck things, but I could see that being thrilling, but not at the so there's a there's a risk reward, right? We all have our thresholds. Um I don't know. I I I miss it. You know, I get some of that in Ukraine, but I'm not in combat in Ukraine. You know, it I love the people I'm with at home. I love the people I'm with with tip of the spear. I love the seven X. God, there's so so much love going on in in, in that tribe, but I I I do want to find a healthy way to to take my breath away, and I I don't know where I'm going to find that. Yeah, I mean, my, my contrast. And I told this story a couple of times on here. When I first did my very first skydive, and the one in Egypt was my second one ever. It was a tandem, um, and before i was literally shitting myself like i went into a mcdonald's bathroom right before we went to, it was in oh, new zealand okay. and i literally had the world's biggest poo and then we went and did a skydive so there was clearly you know as much adrenaline as my glands could foster was searing through my vein i don't know what my heart rate was at but you know when i landed i was like that was amazing i want to do it again so it was more the fear of the unknown become a firefighter spent 14 years in some pretty you know pretty busy departments doing a lot of cool stuff cool stuff and then we go to you know on 7x we we go to cairo and i'm like but there's the thing so so the first one though it didn't have quite the 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 rush in in a good way it didn't scare the shit out of me because it was a plane so you glide out of a plane you don't drop like a stone so now we're jumping out of a russian helicopter over the pyramids and i'm like this is sound like you this is gonna be it this is how I'm going to test. Do I have adrenal fatigue or not? Because for years, I'm like, why do I not? Nothing gets my heart rate up. You know, someone will almost right. hit me in the car and I'll be angry and I want to pull them out of the car, but it's not like my heart rate is up. 
So we do it. I have my uh, <laughs> my uh, Polish skydiver that I'm strapped to who forgot my goggles. And I'm like, okay, well, he forgot the goggles. Let's hope he at least packed the chute. So anyway, there's some factors where, you know, my heart rate should have been up. And we drop and nothing. I'm like, all right, well, there it is then. It's not like, wow, James Gearing is so brave. No, it's physiological. And then yeah. what? going back to combat, going back to the fire service and law enforcement, what is scary to me is you hear a lot of the stories of heroism, you know, and, and these people that ran towards gunfire and, you know, went into that building where no one else would have gone in. And if they survive, then amazing. Now you get medals on your chest and everything. But was that a calculated risk moment and, and coupled with courage and valor? Or was it a combination of adrenal fatigue and maybe even mental health elements where there's a, a discarding of the value of your life now? And these are the things, it's just, just kind of introspective. Like, where is that line between courage and valor and selflessness? And you've completely lost um, the communication with the fear that actually is there to keep you alive. And that's a, a gray area that I think, you know, we're in now. It's like, we're not looking to do anything stupid because luckily our mind is intact too. But you take the physiological response away through the adrenal glands and then you add, you know, some mental health challenges where there's maybe thoughts of self-harm starting to creep in like so many of our brothers and sisters. That's a very, very dangerous cocktail, not only for self-harm, but for seeming valor that ends up being killed by the enemy or the criminal you're chasing or going into a fire that ends up flashing on you and you get burned to death yeah again some really enlightening stuff there i yeah i i uh i i think i fall into a lot of what you were talking about and and again yeah you you, you made a big impact on me on that bus ride about adrenal fatigue because I think I was telling you about the jump, maybe. I was like, God, you know, everyone's like, you know, just tickled pink, you know, about the skydive. And I think you and I were sitting near the front of the bus. And I was like, yeah, it was great. You know, and I, maybe you picked up on I don't remember how the conversation went. I just remember the impact that I had was like, hey, man, it's a thing. You know, you don't don't feel guilty about it or don't don't feel like there's something wrong with you. You know, a lot of us are going through that that threshold is different now because of our experiences for better or for worse. And, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I wish I had something to add to it, but I'm, I'm as confused about it, you know, as I am probably, uh, practicing it. So I don't, I don't know what to add to that intelligently. Well, I think as long as we're aware of it, it's not a dangerous thing. You just have to be aware of it if it is what it is. Because, you know, I saw someone was talking recently. I forget where I saw it, but, uh, oh, adrenal fatigue isn't a thing. You know, in science shows, it's like, okay, no one's saying that they've turned off completely, but it's a much lower amount. Same as, you know, so many people in our professions, their testosterone is in the toilet, even though they're uber athletes because of sleep deprivation and TBIs and these other things. doesn't mean that you have zero test, but it's not where it should be. And I think this is it. With, with the adrenaline side, um, you know, you've just lived in this hypervigilant state for, you know, decades, it's going to have a physiological impact. So being aware of it and then working on nutrition and everything else that maybe will help it repair a bit, beautiful. But I think it's not so much, you know, does it need to be fixed? It's just more like, oh, you know, this, this can be 
this can be an asset in some areas, but just so I'm aware, it can also be detrimental in others. For sure. And then the trick is like in pursuing it, you got to do it in a healthy way, you know, preferably not drugs. I mean, that's an individual, right? I guess, whatever. But I mean, that, that there's hazards come with finding your thrill in dangerous drugs, I assume. And like, you don't want to drive recklessly on a motorcycle, right? It sounds thrilling. I've certainly done it as a douchebag paratrooper at Myrtle Beach, but that's not smart. You know, that's not fair to whoever I hit or whatever deer I, you know, run into. So, yeah. Or maybe I should stop looking for it. You know, like just accept it as a stage of life. Um, but then, see, then it's like, are you being true to yourself? You know, at what point do you stop looking at yourself in the lens of people that love you, which is is important because they're probably right. <laughs> but but you, you you can't deny your own demons. You can't deny your own thirst for thrill, especially when we've been living it, right, man? I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's out there. I'll find it. I'll make it a healthy way of dealing with it uh, and not pissing away my fatherhood and my my marriage in the process. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I just saw uh, what's what's that sport with the big canopy with the big fan on your back? Oh, is it paragliding? I think paragliding. I just saw that on Marketplace and I was like, that looks awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I could totally get into that. Uh, And maybe I will. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Because they're always there. I just watched a free diving video and uh, it was on Netflix. I forget what it was called. Breath something. I highly recommend it. I don't even want to kind of talk about it too much because it leads you on an amazing journey. But that that free diving thing, you've got to find your thing. But um, yeah, I mean, there's so many ways. But also, I think you can go the other way discomfort of being on your on your own in the woods like forcing yourself to be quiet and not be running around you know full of adrenaline is that actually the the new discomfort that you seek you know what i mean so maybe it is yeah yeah maybe uh maybe in in terms of kind of being self-aware i am going through a kind of an interesting thing as of recent um so I think I mentioned to you, so I, I had a bout with cancer, right? It was, uh, it was pretty intense. It was six weeks of chemo and radiation. It was during COVID, absolutely knocked the shit on me. And then, I mean, just, just to kind of put it in a picture. I'm not bragging or looking for sympathy, but I also got pneumonia during it and I got hospitalized during, during the COVID, you know? So that was like just craziness. And, uh, you know, my wife pulled me through it. Um, it, it was, it was a lot. I mean, everyone's warning you, like, hey, you're going to get this, you know, your teeth kicked in. This is going to be miserable. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it will be, but it's temporary. You know, like odds are in my favor and all that stuff. And uh, holy shit, was that brutal. <laughs> I mean, that was really, really, really something else. Um, but w- but what, I'm, what I've discovered from it is, you know, it's kind of like I told my oncologist. I was like, hey, doc. You know, you don't have to be so concerning. Like, this isn't the first time someone's tried to kill me, you know, trying to be <laughs> you know, funny about it. Um, but in a lot of ways, I find myself still addressing me, despite my pledge to myself to focus on family. And despite the comfort I find in the woods, which is time consuming. And despite the time away from my family, which is counter to my first pledge to to 
to volunteer, you know, in, in different places, I still have things that I, I enjoy on top of, see, now I sound like a selfish prick, right? But so like what I did the other day, I got reconnected with an amazing friend. I haven't talked to you in 20 years in the Q course. And I was like, Lori, I'm, I'm, I'm going out to San Antonio for the week. I got to go see, I got to go see spicy Nick. Or he's go. And, uh, and I went and saw him and, you know, just like I'm sure you've had with friends you haven't talked to in decades, you pick up right where you left off, as they say, like, Absolutely. like there was no time. Down. And, uh, and we had a great time. It was absolutely wonderful. And I came home and it had nothing to do with hunting, had nothing to do with volunteerism. And it, and it took me, uh, you know, five days away from my family, but holy shit did I, I really felt that I wanted to do it. Turns out I really needed it. I mean, I would have been just fine if I didn't make the trip, but it really elated me to, to see an old friend and to have such an amazing time with him. So I think there's still this element that despite what your new chapter is or your new definition of life or entertainment is that you, you still got to answer you. It, you don't have to be the martyr and not that I have a martyrdom lifestyle. Everything's fine with, with it, but there's still this, there's still this adolescent Roby that needs to be addressed from time to time. And I, I don't think that's healthy to, to dismiss. Right. Because you don't want to bottle it up just like anything else. You know, I used to say, if you don't if you don't find a healthy way to relieve pressure, then your body will find an unhealthy way to do it. Like you got to, you know, little little release valves, but you got to do it in a healthy way. And if it means going to visit an old friend and not bringing your family along or it meaning five days out of an amazing summer, you know, to it to be reconnected with an old friend, you know, I, I would encourage that. I, I I didn't realize I would get as much from that. I mean, never mind my love for Nick and the time we had, but the idea of just going out, not volunteering, not freezing my ass off in the woods and not spending time, you know, playing Call of Duty or whatever with Luke. Just me and an old friend. And it, I got a lot more out of it than I thought I would. So I, I guess I would just encourage that too. Like you, you got to scratch your itch from time to time. Does that make sense? No, it does completely. I think this is this is something I've talked about when the yeah you know, the the conversation about marriage comes up. Is there's this one kind of idea that two becomes one, and I disagree. You know, like you you kind of lose your identity because now you're the gearings. You know, you're this oh, you're the, the, the Robichaux. And so, you know, you got to take a step back and go. Well, I was attracted to my wife because who she was as an individual. And so if you lose that too much, then you start to almost like fall out of the love with the person because, you know, the same way as you know, a ring goes on your finger and all of a sudden you put 100 pounds and don't care anymore. You know, you, you change the, the rules a little bit. So I think, yeah. you know, my wife goes off on, on her own thing sometimes. I do as well. I think it's important to have your own hobbies, your own loves, your own time, you know, with, with your friends sometimes because... That's the individual that you are, and you don't have to do everything with your child and with your wife. Sometimes, as you said, it's important that you do it as an individual, and that's actually what's attractive to the wife, the husband, whoever it is, because you're retaining that individualism even though you're you know, all in on your marriage or your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So I'm not just a selfish prick. Then. There, there's a, 
If, if you say it, I'll make sure Lori listens to this. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you full heartedly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, just one quick thing before I let you go. Um, you and I are returning on the 7X team to Antarctica. So just kind of talk to me about that experience with, you know, on, through your eyes. I mean, we we met for yeah. the first time in, I guess it was Africa, you know, or on the plane to Africa. So what- Oh, South America, South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So walk me through kind of, you know, your overview of that and then, and then what you're excited about in November. Well, I don't know if you recall, uh, our mutual friend, Bryce, who I served together with the unit in Stuttgart, and we deployed together. Uh, we hit it off, you know, incredibly well, uh, lovingly. And he asked me, you know, he was one of the lead planners, you know, helping Ryan out. Yeah. And he actually, he was in Ukraine with me. I asked him to help me on something in Ukraine. And he, uh, we're driving way, way long road trip back to Poland. And he's, he's telling me about this thing coming up, you know. And how it's a fundraiser for, you know, veterans, you know, uh, mental health and, you know, uh, all the benevolence that this was going to raise funds for. And then the idea of the the book and then, you know, the documentary. And I said, jokingly, I said, well, if you need a guy to go, we call it PDSS, pre-deployment site survey, basically a, an advanced team. I go, if you need help with that, you know, I, I could probably find time to help out. And he's like, um, yeah, you know, let's table that. And a few months later, he goes, hey, you remember Ricky? I go, Ricky from your team? And he's like, yeah. Now, luckily, Ricky and I spent a miserable night in the back of an MRAP with a prisoner while it was raining and cold. So Ricky and I, like, totally bonded under a body bag to try and keep the rain off the three of us one night. Anyways, uh, he goes, yeah, so um, if, if you're available, I could really use you and Ricky to go <laughs> – to go check out uh seven continents you know and uh just do a site survey start interviewing vendors start identifying marathon routes jump locations hotels uh activities for uh you know the the distinguished guests and teammates and you, you got five weeks you know you can cut away <laughs> fuck yes i have five <laughs> weeks <laughs> to travel the world and go find stuff for this amazing amazing mission you know of uh everything that's that's involved in it uh particularly the benevolence you know and 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 how it's helping out these different charity organizations um so we didn't go to all seven we didn't do antarctica but we went everywhere else and i can't say without the shitty and grin because it was such an experience and ricky's such you remember ricky right oh yeah yeah when when ricky transitioned out he'll be coming on as well but he is he's the ultimate gray man like he'll be in the back of the room and you didn't even realize he's there. And then you learn about who he is and what he's done. And you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. 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 He's incredibly, uh, uh, yeah, he's a, he, he was quiet on the trip, but his background and his, his experience and his qualifications, you're like, Oh my God, you know, that guy should write a book, you know? Absolutely. Um, so, so I got to travel five weeks with him around the world, kind of setting every, not setting everything up, but exploring everything. And then, we give feedback to to Ryan and Bryce and the team and uh, boy, just some amazing guys uh, on those video calls and be like, all right, Hey, we just wrapped up in Perth, you know, and here's what we found out. Hey, we just wrapped up in London. Hey, we just wrapped up in Cartagena, you know? And uh, so that's where that adventure started for me. And then uh, Ryan and Bryce asked Ricky and I to come back and uh, kind of join the team to 
to take the VIPs around uh, to different locations. And uh, and again, plus Ryan's generosity, he just contacted me today and asked me to chip in again for uh, the final chapter. Mello, boy, these dogs do not like this podcast. <laughs> well, we're about to wrap it up. Mine's, mine's just outside my door, giving me the evil eyes. So Tragic. okay, see. <laughs> so, but we exactly. so we're going to be going on the plane to finish it, like you said, the one thing, and it was just red tape. But we weren't able to get to Antarctica, so the team is going to be there. Yeah. They're going to be running. Um, I don't know if they're skydiving or not. I haven't heard the final on that yet, but it's going to be the final chapter for the book and the, the yes, documentary. Sir. So, um, all right. Well, I'm going to let you go then because your dog is uh, obviously wanting to do something other than listen to the two of us yap. Um, so before we do I that. I do this all day, James. I can't wait to see you again, man. Uh, despite it being a podcast, you know, um, I, I really enjoyed talking with you. And uh, like always, you, 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 you bring up some really insightful stuff that I'm going to have to give give a little more uh deliberate thought on and I, I appreciate i appreciate you bringing that to light um and uh yeah hopefully this podcast is you know in line with your long 800 plus list of distinguished uh participants um, i'm humbled for the invitation man thank you yeah well i feel so like much. two hours was, was you know scraping the surface of your of your right. life i just want to go over yeah. so tip of the spear people can find landmineremoval.org and then yeah just like Yep. And what about you personally? What about social media or anything if people want to reach out to you or follow you? Uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, it's I am Roby, I underscore M underscore Roby, R-O-B-I-E. So I underscore M underscore R-O-B-I-E is my Instagram handle. Mm. Yeah, and then I guess just LinkedIn. But uh, that's it. I'm, I don't have too much of a presence uh for no particular reason other than i guess i should improve on that these days i think real life is more more enjoyable anyway i mean you know it's great if you have that you know yeah that connection with other people and i i i'm glad that i have the community that i have but ultimately i know a lot of people that live their best life without social media so <laughs> it's yeah. a happy medium maybe uh but in the in the interest of you know the, the whole idea behind excuse me just not to oversimplify it but the idea of this podcast bringing in, you know, the heroes from the first responder community and then, you know, veterans and all the similarities. If anyone listening to this episode, you know, wants to hit me up with anything at all in terms of what I talked about, or, I mean, I don't know what I could possibly offer, but I'm here for the community and, uh, and, and, and for you inviting me in like this means the world. So if there's anything I can do to give back, James, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. 